Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. My guests today are co-CEOs, Karen Kohlberg and Ralph Carlton, who head the 231-year-old, you heard me right, 231-year-old King Arthur Baking Company, a name that I know many of my listeners are quite accustomed to and probably are customers of. This New England stalwart once fed Martha Washington and the California Gold Rush miners in the 1840s. Despite this history, however, the company's continuously updated itself and reinvented itself over the years, most recently becoming a founding B Corp member in 2007, if you think 2007 is recent, but they are an OG B Corp company. King Arthur has long been an active member of this B Corp community, creating first King Arthur's Life Skills Bread Baking Program, which taught 900 Connecticut school children to bake bread and share it with those less fortunate. And today, it's called the Bake for Good program, and it's expanded nationwide and has reached hundreds of thousands of middle school kids around the country. Karen and Ralph, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great for you guys to be joining. I was really looking forward to this episode. I might come away hungry, but uh, we'll see. This could be tough for me. Um, so the first thing I want to just ask is co-CEOs. Now, I think we all know that the success rate of co-anything, let alone CEOs, is actually quite low with many companies. But I feel like you two have been able to make this work and excel at it, potentially even making, who knows, a little bit of a formula and a format for others to follow. Just can you talk a little bit about how that works and how it came about? Yes, it is unique. And we love talking about it because it's something that I think we're pretty proud of. We have been co-CEOs since, Ralph will correct me, which is wonderful why we make such a good team. I'm going to say 2015, 2014. Ralph, pick one. Yes. <laughs> anyway, 14. so but we started actually as a trio. We can talk about that transition. But just the concept of co is part of who we are as a culture and part of who we are as people. And I think our company is all oh, as collaboration and working across functions, across businesses, and we have a few of them. It's just part of what we do. I think our founders, the Sands family, led the company with a lot of employee engagement and passed that, you know, kind of through the values as the company evolved and as we became 100% employee owned. And our our predecessor also led through us, you know, we have a strategy team, it's about 10 of us now, also led very collaboratively. And there was a lot of autonomy and decision-making and sharing and transparency. And for Ralph and I, I think the key for us as we go forward is having a partner that you are incredibly honest with, incredibly transparent with, you debate things, you're kind of forthright, you don't hold back. And you work through the issues that you disagree on. And there, it's not as though, because we're not aligned on everything, but we trust one another too. And we've grown together in seven years almost to make it work. And I should let Ralph add a little bit too. It really is a lot of fun. It isn't for everybody. I think doing it, you get a sense of why it wouldn't work out. It's really easy to see. It requires, first of all, as individuals, it requires a commitment to partnership. And so many co-CEO situations are set up as competitions or one wants to be sole CEO. And it's, we can tell you straightforward, that will never work. 
it just doesn't fly. That's kind of the necessary condition to work. The other thing is right really from day one, on the advice of some really thoughtful people, we gave a lot of time and thought to how we operate as co-CEOs. It's not casual. We've divvied up responsibilities. We've divvied up day-to-day responsibilities. We reserve certain decisions for ourselves as co-CEOs where a single CEO might normally make a decision. We delegate many of the decisions to ourselves as individuals when we run our respective areas of the company. So it's not a casual thing. It actually requires a lot of thought. Yeah, I would imagine you need to be quite deliberate and specific in terms of who does what. And so Ralph, your background, you joined originally as the CFO, right? So your background's in finance, right? So my guess, I could be wrong, is that you probably handle a lot of that domain still, while you still have input, of course, you know, from Karen, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Very much so. Actually, my background is a little broader than that. So Karen and I actually over seven years have pretty much covered with a few exceptions, almost every area. We shift around every two or three years just to keep things interesting for the people who work for us. So I oversee operations now, finance, HR, those types of areas. Karen is overseeing the sales and marketing and our direct business amongst other areas. So we complement each other. That's the other thing that's a very important piece of it. We do bring a different perspective to the business, to problem solving. And our belief, I certainly am a believer that better ideas come out when you have different points of view. I kind of want to underscore the, well, certainly the last point you made. Having someone that you can talk about anything with so freely is, for me, as someone who, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, would I be CEO, co-CEO of King Arthur? I probably would have said, no, you know, there were, in terms of where we were, what was happening. I love it. I love that I have a partner. And the things that we work on really closely together are, and we do switch it up, not that frequently, but but is the strategy, is the, is the mission. Are we doing what we want to do as a baking company? There's a long range strategy serving the company. And Ralph brings a lot, of, that's what I wanted to say. Ralph brings a lot of strategic experience to the company that he's, you know, over his lengthy career. Being co-CEOs and having that partner, I'm sure, was a huge value and incredibly helpful during COVID because I think it's fair to say that none of us would have ever anticipated really or have seen anything quite as dramatic as a pandemic from a personal and a business perspective. I think it was great during COVID for two reasons. One is we, like everyone else, we're improvising almost from day one. And it is great to have a partner when you're improvising because you need to make decisions faster than you ever have before, but you've got someone to talk to and just make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Second, in this particular instance, workload, just having two people who could lead and take different parts of the company forward really helped out a lot. Yeah, there was no playbook with COVID. And the first thing we could talk about, I'm sure, COVID for a bit, and we'll come back to it possibly, but there was such an unknown path. We didn't know if we would remain open. We were so concerned about our employees. And the first thing we did was put together a team. It's ebbed and flowed in the frequency with which it had to come together of this cross-functional 10 of us again or so. And Ralph and I I think we attend all of those together because it was so important that the response, and for at least most of them, we tried to attend together. 
that we set a path that we could both one believe in and speak to, but also that we could be nimble and be maybe deciding and changing kind of in the moment. And yeah, COVID was it was incredible on so many levels, but quite you know quite terrifying at the beginning. The other thing too, this is a really good example of what Karen said before in terms of our role in reinforcing values of the company. Because again, no playbook, but the thing we knew we had to uphold was the employee ownership of the company and our employee-centric culture. And so many of the decisions that came up quickly had to do with health, with safety, which were not difficult calls, but you had to make them. And then there were issues, uh, financial issues for people who couldn't come to work and the like. And, you know, we reinforced each other from the start that we were going to take just a very safe and generous view of all the decisions we needed to make. And some of them weren't easy, but at the time we felt good about it. And certainly in retrospect, we feel really good. Well, about it. and I've had a couple of guests over the last several months who have had to thread this very really thread a needle and it was very challenging you need to be very deft in that they wanted to keep people employed they also wanted to keep them safe they needed people to work because the demand given the business they're in because some businesses had excessive demand and yours is one of them you needed to keep up with the demand because suddenly everyone's baking you know everyone's at home how did you balance that there's a lot of calculus involved because you have health and welfare and safety, but you also have demand, which and the two the two are connected. And I imagine that's a very hard thing to navigate. Yes, and because, as Ralph just said, they've always the employees first. The team responded really quickly with figuring out from a manufacturing standpoint and a fulfillment standpoint, if you will, because we have a direct to consumer business, a pretty robust direct to consumer business. We took the time really quickly to say, how are we going to make this work? Socially distanced, mask, what are our protocols going to be? And we had to put those in place very quickly. And we had to step into a space of we needed more capacity than we would have in normal times. And we probably had less capacity in a socially distanced protocol approach. And therefore, we had to both get everybody working focused, want to come to work and be safe. And then communicating on the outside with our customers what we were doing, that we were going to be disappointing you. If, if normally we were getting orders out the door in 48 hours, it might take a week, it might take two weeks. And so figuring out the internal plan with everybody first and foremost, and then making sure we're communicating on all fronts, of course, internally to start, but externally as well, so that people could understand that as employee owners, there's a lot of, we're just eager to do everything we possibly can to do the job. And we wanted people to know it's okay if it's going to take two weeks when it normally might take two days. Right. And Ralph, what was that moment when you knew that actually there's going to be this exponential surge in demand? And did you know that was going to happen? I mean, you don't know until it happens, but... I could, I could lie to you and tell you we knew precisely the hour it was right. going to happen. But it was approximately a year ago today where daily sales, we get our orders in the morning. We're suddenly, what were they carrying? 6X, 7X what we normally get, which doesn't normally happen to us. And that caught our attention. And it became clear very, very quickly. It was the early part of the pandemic for the first month because of decisions we had made before. We actually had enough product to meet this crazy demand for the first month. 
But then we went into a position that we asked our mills to produce at 110% of capacity. They couldn't produce fast enough for us to meet the demand. So we went through a three, it felt like 10 year process where we were unable to keep the shelves filled and disappointed pretty much everyone out there, certainly our customers, our retailers, and that's a position no business wants to be in. At the same time, our team worked very, very hard to find additional sources of capacity and people actually put on new lines and did a whole bunch of things to bring additional milling capacity into place. So we were able to get back to normal around August and then we're able to build really healthy levels of inventory by the time we went into the holiday season. It was very, very challenging though. Karen, how much of this new way forward and level of demand do you think is sustainable? And have you seen it level out? And I imagine, you know, the flip side is how do you forecast for 2021 and kind of post-pandemic or roll into hopefully a post-pandemic? So the first three months or so, it didn't stay at the 6X level for too long, but it definitely stayed at the 2X level for a sustained period of time. But as we head into the baking season, which is for us kind of November, December, the peak of our year, that's where we saw leveling off still above prior year, but getting more into that sort of low double digits range above prior year. And at that time, and even into now, we are at the moment where we're saying, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next as COVID becomes under control, let's say, as vaccines get out there, we can imagine a post-pandemic future and people want to go to concerts, they want to go to restaurants, they want to get out of their kitchens, they want to travel. What does that mean for baking? And so we're well aware of the potential downside and we've gained a really significant amount of market share over the course of the past 12 months. And we are challenging ourselves to hang on to as much of it as we possibly can because we believe that, well, one, baking is this wonderful activity and that a lot of people discovered it and it's become a hobby for them. It can stay a hobby for them. And as we think about, you know, FY, our fiscal year coming up, fiscal 22, we're kind of going somewhat aggressively in the, you know, 20 to 30 percent above pre-pandemic levels. You know, we still think there's a lot of potential. But again, not above pandemic levels, pre-pandemic. But when you both gain market share the way we did, we also rebranded this past year to King Arthur Baking Company from King Arthur Flour. And combining that as well as with sort of the innovation that we're working on, there are a lot of reasons for us to believe in a strong future kind of post-pandemic. It just will not be obviously a 2x that we experienced in the first quarter of the pandemic. I mean, my my understanding of the brand is you have a very special relationship with your consumers, not just direct consumers, but whether it's the baker's hotline or baking classes, which are really hard to get into. You have to really plan ahead. I've tried, but I bought the kits. I made some incredible scones with your product. And I never thought I was, I was very scared of making scones. So I have to believe that the core values of the company have only been more manifest through the pandemic. And I'm hoping that, you know, all those new audiences and new folks that you've attracted will stay. And I think they will. I think people will remember because they're not going to remember it in a negative way. They're going to remember it in a therapeutic, comforting way. Like this is what I did and I'm going to stay with it. I mean, there's sometimes good comes out of bad. And I do think like that could be good. I 
of course, completely agree with you. <laughs> and, you know, we're sort of humbly aware of this wonderful awareness that we have gained and that people have discovered us through the pandemic. And a lot of the things that we did, which we've normal, we have done life skills baking that became bake for good. It's been around for decades. And so just sort of amplifying that program, doing more of it, as well as adapting it, saying, well, how do we now help bakeries that are struggling and are closing because of the pandemic? How do we take the concept of bake for good and use our flour, our resources, so that we can help keep those bakeries open, we can buy their product, they can donate it in their communities. And so there's all those things that we did and talked about them as we normally would through blogs, through Instagram, social, et cetera, as you can imagine. So I think people have learned more about who we've always been. And I do agree and, and believe that people, when they go to that shelf at the grocery store, will go, yeah, that's that company that is employee owned. And they really believe in what baking can do for the community. And one of the things that we hope has set us apart is for you know decades now, we have always recognized the role that knowledge and inspiration plays in baking, no matter what level baker you are. It's a little different than other types of fruit preparation. You really need some kind of help to bake successfully. And our mission is not to be a product company, but it's to serve the baker to be a source of knowledge and inspiration and great product for the baker. So when people in the pandemic reached out and started looking online, on social and other places for help in baking, we are one of the leading sources of knowledge and inspiration out there right now. So a decision that was made decades ago, hopefully was an important piece of why people are choosing the brand at this point in time. Yeah, and I would, not to put words in your mouth, but I would add that knowledge plus inspiration equals confidence. And the one thing that I'd always lacked in baking, because I always thought baking was a little bit more like chemistry versus cooking. I don't know, the margin for error seemed a lot greater and scarier. And I feel like I'd let more people down baking than cooking. But I feel like the brand, through its tutorials, inspiration, education, and whatnot, has given a level of confidence to anyone. So anyone could bake which is really nice, especially for people like me, because I'm scared of it. It's nice to hear that from you. It's nice to hear that because that's exactly what we're aiming. That's what gives us satisfaction. The smile that comes on people's faces after they've successfully baked, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time. Right. Right. And I was just going to say, one, you don't have to be scared of it, but we, we completely understand that. And we hear that so much from people, especially when it comes to bread baking. And I'm not, scones actually... They're easy, but they're not easy. There are things that you kind of have to get in there and go, wait, am I supposed to rub the butter between my fingers? What does that mean? How does, is it supposed to be this messy? And our hotline, our school, our you know, email chat, all of it, you know, really that had the same increase that the flower demanded. You know, it was the six times, you know, the, the amount of people calling and asking for help or call, however they choose to you know, engage with us sort of experienced almost the same kind of lift initially. And it's all it's all kind of tapering, but it's all still elevated, which is great. And that's what people, they're so appreciative of us giving them, and I love that you said that formula you created for us, knowledge plus inspiration equals confidence, because I think it's really meaningful for, well, it's for us to hear that and for the baker to, you know, kind of come away that, I, yeah, now I know how to do something. I also am really amazed, and it's the reason why I was so happy to have you on the show, that 
you know, for 231 years, the company through various levels of ownership was able to stay true to its values. And I just want to repeat them because originally, so the company was founded in 1790 by Henry Wood. It was originally called Henry Wood and Company, first flower company in America and New England's first food company, right? That's pretty incredible. And the name King Arthur came from the Arthurian attributes of purity, loyalty, honesty, superior strength, and a dedication to a higher purpose. This is in 1790. 1790, right? Like we're all now woke now, like ESG and social impact. Okay. So this is, you know, so long ago where there were so many other atrocities and terrible things that we were doing and so many gross inequities and racism and slavery, right? Meanwhile, you have this food company, this baking company, right? A flour company at the time. How do you think the company has been able to sustain and pivot and stay culturally relevant? And it ladders all the way to, you know, in 2007, becoming one of the first B Corps. Nobody knew what a B Corp was. And now we have B Corp month and, you know, last couple of years is really kind of taken hold. But I'm going to actually start with you, Karen, and then I'd love to hear from you as well, Ralph. But the question really is, maintaining cultural relevance in an authentic way and staying true to your values over 231 years is unreal. How? How did that happen? So just one quick point of clarity. The Arthur piece was around 1896 when, I don't know, whenever the play was. The company was in the Sands family for five generations. And and it became Henry Wood to the Sands Henry Wood, or I'm getting the name wrong. But it was in the Sands family for five generations. And Frank Sands, who is still here in Norwich, Vermont, used to say something, and it's not rocket science, but he used to say, just do business the right way and everything will work out. That's simple, but it's deeply rooted in who we are. And when we talk about our journey to becoming a B Corporation, we always say, well, we were B Corp before we were a B Corp. It, it was a very simple and natural transition for us to step into that opportunity and to be a founding B Corporation. And I think it takes work on our part as leaders, as well as our broader strategy team to talk about the values, to create opportunities for people to live the values. So everyone is able to volunteer 40 hours a year in their communities for us to use our platforms more and more, Ralph and I and, and our teams, because I think this company is what it is because of the employee owners of the company, you know, embracing our values and both if we're not giving opportunities, pushing us, you know, we're collectively pushing each other to live our values because people come here because of what they know about us or what they believe about us. And it's important that we hold each other accountable to them. I should let Ralph share something too. No, I think you've captured it well. One of the things that builds on itself is when you get comfort at a critical value, such as take a simple one, employee ownership. We've been employee owned since the early 2000s. And that is a core value of who we are. It is something we don't really need to think about. You just do it and the employee comes first. And that's been relatively straightforward to us. As you look at areas that may not be as simple, if you look at our work in the environment and you look at some other things where there are bigger challenges to overcome, I'll speak for myself. I, I find the ease at which we are able to build these goals into our day-to-day business in one area 
transferable to other, that sense that if you put something first and make it a priority, you can make it happen even if it's challenging. And you know, a question you often hear is, particularly around B Corp goals, is to what extent are they in conflict with business goals? And they're not in conflict. And I use ESOP as the example. We are never in conflict because we're an ESOP. We, we know what we need to do. And when you take that attitude to other areas, it's just a natural piece of who we are. And you moved from Boston to Norwich or Vermont in the 90s, yeah? In the 80s, actually. Frank Sands moved the company in the early 80s. Late, okay, early 80s. Was it harder or easier to then recruit people? I mean, I love Vermont. And we mentioned off air that, you know, my wife's from Vermont and I have a lot of, a lot of affection for the state, the great state of Vermont, but in Norwich is probably off the 89 corridor, right? Somewhere. Did it make it easier, harder, or in, and what was the reasoning? I mean, I know that he's probably from there, but that's a big move. It was because he was here. He went to Dartmouth. He had spent time here in the summers. It's a long story, but Frank and Brenna basically restaged the company in the early 80s. They had gone through a very difficult business period. Uh, and Frank, it's public, he's very open about it, where they tried to expand more than they were capable of. And things kind of came unglued. And Frank went back, this is just a wonderful story, went back to first principles and said, you know, what's the true strength of the company? What's the true heart and soul of the company? And uh, retail flower and to a slightly lesser extent, professional flower, stood at that center and he said, we got to basically start all over again and we're going to move the company up to Norwich and we're going to focus on what we do well. And I hope he envisioned the kind of success that we've had, but it's come a long, long way. At the time he moved to Norwich, King Arthur Flower was a regional New England brand that was kind of a little bit known outside from people who spent time in New England. So it's been quite a transition. And I'll just add to your thought about recruiting is it's definitely a challenge or, you know, finding folks that want to be up here, particularly full time. And I think, as you could imagine, the past year has been so enlightening and made us realize that, gosh, we can run the company remotely. And I think so many companies have learned that over the course of the past year. And we certainly don't see it fully remote. So much of our culture is about being together, is about sharing, is about being inspired by each other. And it's not, it's hard to do that virtually. And again, like I said, I think the the ability to strike a balance there so that we are able to find the folks we need to continue to grow the company and still nurture and protect the culture. Another part of the future that looks even kind of stronger on that front, given where we are. How far are you from Mount Mansfield? <laughs> Two hours, an hour and 40. Okay. I'm just asking from a skier's perspective, you know, in case I want a career change. So. Killington is 45 minutes down the road. 45 minutes. Killington's close. Okay, fine. Killington. Killington's great. Killington's great. Longer runs on Mansfield. Yeah. I'm not either. I mean, like my wife, I think, was born with skis. Yeah. I learned in my late 30s, uh, mid 30s, which is really a terrible time to learn how to ski, by the way. So I'm like a pizza skier, you know, not French fry, pizza. It's bad. Nice. Nice. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, well. Not if you're good behind you. me. It's not nice. Yeah. You've got to be brave. Big S curves, big yeah. S curves. Yeah, yes. scary. So I feel like, has HBR ever done anything with King Arthur? I feel like this is an HBR case study. It has to be. 
It was written, I think, 2010 or so. The whole story of the ESOP transition was written up as a case study. And it's still taught at Harvard Business School and it's taught at Tuck. It's a great story because of Frank Sands' really generous decision when he had a lot of choices to sell the company to its employees. Yeah, I feel like the story needs a next chapter, though, or another chapter to the book, because so much has happened well, in the last year, but in the last 11 years as well. It's absolutely incredible. And just one more question. It seems kind of silly, but being in the business that I'm in, I know that a logo change isn't just a logo change. There's always a story and significance behind a logo change. There has to be. And I noticed that very recently, I think it must have been in 2020, you changed your logo to a wheat crown. Why? We did two. We changed the name of the company to King Arthur Baking Company and concurrently redesigned the logo and with the wheat crown at the center of it. And the rebranding was something we've been talking about probably for more than five or six, seven, eight years. And we will move quickly going, we'll, we've learned how to move more quickly and we will continue to build on that learning of making decisions more quickly. But that was something took a, it took us a while to commit to the change. But about 18 months prior to, I'm gonna say like basically a year ago, we were ready to launch and we started a, a fairly rigorous, as you can imagine, you're talking about your background in marketing, re consumer research with our consumers, external consumers, what do you think of our, logo. And we learned a lot that people thought we were a British company, people who don't know us, that there certainly wasn't the recognition of, of the brand in just in its totality. And then certainly the meaning of the logo and what it made, what it um, felt to them. And so we, you know, we worked with a firm out of Minneapolis who were wonderful, Little and Company. And three of us were at the sort of core team. And then there was a broader team that was critical. We had a lot of buy-in on this. And we basically wanted to create a logo that spoke to who we are and that was relevant for us moving forward and was well you know kind of welcomed all bakers it said something about who we are in terms of wheat if you will it's our foundation it's not all we do it spoke somewhat to the level of you know the the quality of the brand with the crown itself and the name meaning we weren't walking away from king arthur and we explored about 65 or so different options, but it was very easy and I shouldn't say easy, but it became clear. We narrowed very quickly on this concept and we iterated on the, on the wheat crown for a while, but it was what we needed to go forward. As we said, we're all about baking. We want to be this welcoming brand that you know is accessible to a lot of people and we hopefully will be around for another 230 years. Hopefully none of us will be around for 230 years because that would be <laughs> right. really ugly. But I agree. I hope the institution does. I've always found the branding process interesting and in watching companies go through it because really what it does is it's kind of a surrogate for exploration in a renewed journey. And it sometimes exposes dysfunction and or disconnects. And other times it also helps to surface what really matters to you. And I feel like it's just a very healthy, albeit there's a cost involved, but there's a payback as well. It's a very healthy exercise. I imagine you felt that way as well, even though it's long and it's tedious and it's arduous, it's also very rewarding. Yes, I feel lucky to have been part of this transition and what maybe will be a 460 year history, but to be a part of that 
at this point because it's just a change that was needed in terms of what the company was about. And, you know, we had the knight on the horse and it just wasn't, it had lost its meaning, I think, when you start in terms of trying to attract and pull in new, new people into the company. And we did everything that you are describing in terms of what are our values? What do people think of when they see this old logo, the new logo, 10 other ones, and continue just zeroing and zeroing in so that we came up with something that, yes, spoke to our values and really will serve us for a long time. And that was yeah. the real goal. I'd like to know what your favorite baked good is that you cannot live without and what your favorite King Arthur product is. Actually, my favorite King Arthur product is a very recent one. We just came out with Double O Pizza Flour. And we are huge fans of pizza and came up with a pizza flour that performs as well as traditional Italian Double O but bakes particularly well in the temperature of a home oven, as opposed to the 900 degrees you would typically see in a pizzeria. So we're having a blast making pizza. It's been our pandemic go-to. It's been really, really good. Favorite baked good? I, I'm a huge fan of cinnamon buns. That's my weakness. And it turns out it's our recipe, a total coincidence, it's our recipe of the year. So uh, I urge people to look online if, if that's one of your favorites. Is it double O or double zero? I was in Naples with my family a couple of years ago and I, I first learned about double O. I used to call it double zero, but let's just set that now. Let's just get that right now. Is it double O or double zero? I think it's double zero. Yeah. But we say double O. We, we say, say double, double O, but. You're so synonymous. It doesn't mean the letter. Is that what you mean? The letter versus the number? Is that what you're asking? It's zero. Well, no, it's zero. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. But yeah. I want to be in the know. I want to be like in the inside and someone's like, it's double zero. I'm like, no, listen, I, I talked to the experts and actually they really secretly call it double O. That's all. Yes. I just want to know. I just want to know. That's we call we, it double O. That's what you would say. All right. Nice. Okay. Okay, Karen, over to you. So, so I bake a lot, but I'm going to say my favorite and it's just so like predictable old school, but I bake... And I have them frozen in the fridge right now. Always have them. They're oatmeal chocolate chip cookies, but they use these Belkalod chocolate discs. Mm. And I don't bake them quite every night, but I bake them a lot. And so those are the favorite and I have to have them. They're, you know, a little bit like oxygen. The product, you know, it's, you know, it's like a child. Like I, I, that's really hard for me to say what my favorite, my favorite product is, but I'll just talk about what a little bit that I'm, through the pandemic, I baked a lot more as well. So we have our all-purpose flour, which is this workhorse. But I'd say did a lot more baking with our bread flour. And we have something called a white whole wheat flour, which is, I would encourage folks to check it out because it's just, it's a product that bakes kind of like an all-purpose flour, but you get the benefits of a whole grain flour. And I've been exploring rye flour, which is just really fun to try in a brownie. Oh, interesting. So- Explore. Huh. I think we talked about that at the beginning, might have been off air, but just, you know, yes, the rules are important in baking, but once you start doing it, it's really fun to explore. Yeah, for sure. And I assume that all these recipes, including those chocolate oatmeal cookies are online or I can find them or you'll just email yes. them to me out of <laughs> exactly. kindness. Yes, of course. Awesome. <laughs> Listen, now this is what I was worried about. Like I would be leaving this podcast with all of my listeners as well as myself, super hungry. So Mission accomplished. Congratulations. <laughs> Great. And I have a huge sweet tooth. It's a, it's a big problem. It's a big, big problem. 
or it's not. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, no, it's good. It's good. It's great. I lean into it. So it was wonderful to speak with both of you to learn so much more about King Arthur and the history and kind of peeking behind the curtain. And I wish you all the greatest success. I know it's going to be not going to be 6x forever, but I'd like you to maintain 2x and continue to climb. And I'll do all I can to, uh, to help with that cause because I think you guys are an incredible team and an incredible company. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was fun. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quipkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. 